Well, good afternoon, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us um, today for our Berkman Klein Center Luncheon Talk. And just a couple of quick reminders before we are underway once more. Firstly, this presentation and the subsequent question and answer portion um, are being live webcast and recorded for posterity. So just keep that in mind as you participate in the discussion. The following luncheon talk for next week will be um, Algorithmic Consumers with Professors Gal of the University of Haifa and Elkin Korn, a visiting professor here at the law school, April 4th, right in this room. Uh, without further ado, I'll hand the mic over to Jessica Fjeld, who will introduce our speaker. Thank you, Daniel. So um, as some of you know, I recently had my first child, which means um, a 21st century rite of passage, where in the middle of the night when you really should be sleeping, instead you're wandering alone through the wilds of online shopping. <laughs> and uh, you, are, as a new parent, are buying things online that you never imagined you would buy online, like paper towels and bizarre sleep contraptions and crayons for birthday parties. Um, and all the while you imagine you're alone, but in fact, um, as Professor Stuckey is going to tell us today, companies are collecting data on you and running experiments. Um, and so what he's actually here to tell us is why on earth Amazon thought that I was willing to pay $10 for like a tiny box of Crayolas. Um, I suspect it had to do with my zip code <laughs> and maybe what I was willing to pay for one of those bizarre sleep contraptions. Um, Professor Stuckey is a professor at the University of Tennessee Knoxville College of Law. He's also a co-founder of the Data Competition Institute, and together with a co-author, he has written um, this terrific new book, Virtual Competition. And he is here today uh, to talk to us about how algorithms are changing online shopping um, and how competition law may or may not be up to the job of regulating them. We are thrilled to have him here to talk about these important issues, so please join me in welcoming Maurice Stuckey. lunch to eat with the fellows. And we were noticing about how much now you're seeing the shift from brick and mortar stores to online. And we also noticed that with that shift, there's an increase in the use of these pricing algorithms. And we asked, well, what would happen if these pricing algorithms could somehow collude with one another? And that started then the whole process, the whole inquiry that led to our book. So. The first thing, and my, my co-author Ariel always says, is this is the sort of the, the warning, is that we recognize at the beginning that a data-driven economy can really provide us a lot of benefits. And if you look at it, um, we've got Einer here as well, that all of these factors would suggest that the economy would become more competitive because by increasing the amount of data and the algorithms, you can have dynamic pricing that could promote allocated efficiency. You can lower entry barriers. You can lower the search costs in order to identify uh, products and the like. And you can have significant efficiencies. And we don't dispute that. 
The second thing is that we're not anti-technology. Uh, we believe that big data and big analytics can be good, they could be bad, or they could be neutral. It depends on several factors, on how companies employ these technologies, whether or not their incentives are in line with our incentives, and certain market um, characteristics. So that's our disclaimer. But the one thing that we came upon is that we started hearing that, well, with these online markets, because they're so dynamic, that they rarely, if ever, will be anti-competitive. And we were wondering, is that necessarily true? And that led us then to say, well, what would be some of the anti-competitive scenarios that might result? <clears throat> the key thing here is that competition in the online world may appear to you competitive. There may be the facade of competition. But you're not necessarily going to benefit to the extent that you would think you would in a competitive market. So these are the three scenarios that we're going to address today. And the first one involves algorithmic collusion. And when we looked at this, we came up with the following four scenarios. And the first scenario, the messenger scenario, is the easiest. Here you have competitors that are agreeing to collude, and they're using the algorithms to help perfect their cartel. And in the antitrust world, that's considered a no-brainer, because the illegality inheres with the agreement itself. So when we were writing this, the DOJ prosecuted its first case involving algorithms, it's the Topkins case, and there the co-conspirators were agreeing among themselves to fix the price of posters that were on the Amazon marketplace. And because the illegality inheres with the agreements, the humans agree, they go to jail. The second scenario is a little bit more complex. Here you have an agreement, but it's a series of vertical agreements. Basically, you're allowing one entity to use its algorithm to set the price of multiple market participants. And we use Uber as the example. So with Uber, <clears throat> the drivers could conceivably compete with one another over price, but they don't. Uber sets the price. They also determine whether or not there's going to be a surcharge, where the surcharge will be, the extent of the surcharge, and how long the surcharge um, lasts. And that, in and of itself, is not anti-competitive. Because let's say Uber enters into a new market, and it has its first driver, not necessarily an anti-competitive effect. But what happens as Uber's market power increases? And so now, it's no longer necessarily responding to market forces. It could start setting the price. In fact, it is determining what the market price is. And here, now, each driver that is added to the platform, they understand that no one else is going to necessarily undercut them on price. So to what extent does that resemble then the hub and spoke conspiracy? The third scenario, we call a tacit collusion on steroids, this is even trickier. Here, each firm unilaterally decides to adopt a pricing algorithm. But by doing so, they understand that with the speed in which these algorithms can respond to one another, and the increase in market transparency, you can have an anti-competitive outcome, namely tacit collusion. And tacit collusion in the United States is not illegal. But the outcome can be as bad as express collusion. It's the interdependence. You have a classic case here in uh, Martha's Vineyard where the, the, the First Circuit um, had to address this claim of price fixing. 
And what the court said, no, 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 the, the, the gas stations in Martha's Vineyard could all agree, not could all elevate price above competitive levels without agreeing with one another. They just see what the others are doing and that they respond in, in kind. And that by itself is not illegal under the competition law. So with our third scenario, we don't have an anti-competitive agreement among competitors to fix price, but we have evidence of anti-competitive intent. And the question here is, is that enough? Is that by itself enough? And is there a tool that the agency can use to go after that? And there might be under <coughs> Section 5 of the FTC Act, but that could be problematic. And then the last scenario is the most problematic. Here, we don't have evidence of any agreement among the competitors. Each company decides to adopt the other. And we don't have any evidence of anti-competitive intent. But you have the confluence of two factors. We call one God view and the other artificial intelligence. God view is a term that we borrow from Uber because um, Uber has the ability to see on a screen where all of the drivers are and where all the passengers are. And it gives them a view then to see the commercial activity. So one thing we ask is what happens now with the increase of the internet of things and the like, the increase in data flow? Can you have such an increased transparency in the marketplace that rivals will now know not only where their customers are, but also what their rivals are doing? And they could respond then well before price. They could see if a rival is seeking to enter into a particular market by building warehouses and the like, and they can respond in how. And the second component would be artificial intelligence. And here, through machine learning, the computers learn how to arrive at the optimal strategy. And one of the things that fascinated us is that Carnegie Mellon recently came out with this uh, program that defeated some of the world's best poker players, Texas Hold'em. And the remarkable thing about it was is that they didn't teach the computer how to play poker itself. I mean, they gave it the basic rules, but they didn't tell them these are the optimal strategies. What they basically gave the computer was basic game theory. And the computer, through trial and error, playing multiple, multiple, multiple hands, was able then to define the optimal strategy. And the human players wouldn't always know why the computer acted that way. They sometimes thought, oh, the computer made a mistake. And later they discovered that, no, it was actually that they had made a mistake. And the second thing was, once the, the players, they started ganging together, let's find the weaknesses of the computer and we'll try to exploit it. Overnight, the computer would identify itself its own weaknesses and then correct them. So when they tried to then exploit it, they lost as well. So this last scenario, is causing the most heartburn for competition authorities. It's not there yet, but now the executives themselves might not necessarily know why the algorithms are behaving in such a manner, but it may be some strategy in order to maximize profits, and they may be tactically colluding in ways that the executives don't even know. So that's our first set of anti-competitive scenarios, algorithmic collusion. Then we shift into the other world, which is very different. In algorithmic collusion, it's likely involved homogenous goods. You're going to have high entry barriers and the like. Here, this would be the example that, but that you mentioned going on Amazon, whereby companies 
are devoting a lot of resources to tracking you, to collect data about you, to identify what your likely reservation price is, how much you're willing to pay, and also to induce you to buy things that you ordinarily may not want to have purchased before. And so we love this uh, quote from the internet. It's to get you to buy things that you don't need with money you don't have to impress people you don't like. And this is how behavioral discrimination differs from price discrimination that we all, I mean, anyone here who's paying college tuition is a victim of price discrimination, but we don't complain about it. But this type of price discrimination is different. First off, it moves closer to first screen, first degree discrimination. And secondly, it's shifting the demand curve to the right and getting you to buy things ordinarily you might not have purchased. And that could be good if that product is under demanded, like dental services. But it can also be bad if you're exploiting these various biases. So when we presented earlier uh, like a draft of this to one of the competition authorities, one of their uh, the chief economists said, you know, there are over 100 biases that the behavioral economics literature has identified. So it wouldn't be that hard for the company to identify one uh, to um, exploit um, consumers. And the thing here is that you may not necessarily be aware of it. You're thinking you're just an ordinary shopper making an ordinary purchase. And the reality that you're presented is the reality that you accept. But what is presented to you is carefully orchestrated based on all the data that's collected about you, about how much money you're making, where you're living, what you're reading, what are you watching, and the like. And the price that you're charged is going to differ than the price that someone else is going to be charged. And the products that you're offered can differ from other um, products as well. And we also explore the welfare effects of that. That the economists, when we were presenting this, the economists were equivocal about price discrimination. Lawyers and judges seem to be more um, concerned about price discrimination generally. When we talked about behavioral discrimination, there was a greater concern among all the parties about that because the welfare effects are less clear and they can be potentially um, um, troubling for us. And let's take us then to the third scenario, which we call frenemies. So we wanted to have a unifying theme. How do we connect the collusion scenarios and the um, behavioral discrimination scenarios? And we came to say, well, where does the power lie now in this new ecosystem? And what we found is that the power lies with the super platforms. The Europeans call it GAFA, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon. And one Wall Street analyst said it nicely, that apps are worth millions, but platforms are worth billions. And what we find is that the super platforms can have what's called a frenemy relationship with the websites and the apps of the web. And the way to analogize this it would be as if a den of lions were coordinating among themselves to track the gazelle as they go across the savannah. And so there, they're friends because they want to better track you, they want to better identify you. But once the gazelle is killed, then there's competition over who gets the choice cut of the gazelle. And the power we find here lies with the, um, the super platforms. And one of the things that we bring about is there the tale of two apps in order to see what the incentives are in this um, ecosystem. 
So I've got this one app that's offered for free on your phone. You turn it on, it converts your uh, phone into a flashlight. But unbeknownst to you, that app is also tracking your geolocation data and is selling that surreptitiously to advertisers in order to target you with ads. This company then is fined by the FTC because they've engaged in deceptive practices. The other app is Disconnect. And Disconnect's purpose is, it was actually one of the co-founders was one who worked for one of the super platforms. And they said, we're going to better uh, allow you to better able prevent yourself from being tracked if you don't want to, and to control who can track you within this ecosystem. <coughs> so we asked, which of the two gets kicked off of the Google uh, Play Store? The one that engages in deceptive behavior, or the one that enables consumers to better protect themselves? <laughs> this one is still on. And we want to understand why that is. And it was really interesting when we presented this, one person who's from the industry said, well, this is like inviting an arsonist to our house because their incentives are counter to our incentives. We want to encourage the tracking of consumers. So the key point here is that these gatekeepers can have a lot of power in controlling the ecosystem and affecting the incentives within that ecosystem. And this is not really the end of the story. What we're now going to emerge to is the digital personal assistant. So when you, know, you have a new baby, one of the things you can now, I believe you tell in software, is a digital bubble that will sing to that baby, will talk to the baby, will learn from the baby, right? will communicate with and you will now conceivably have a digital personal assistant that could be with that baby before they were born all the way until they die. And what are the implications then of the digital bug? And these can be profound. Because now, when you still have the ability to go onto Google and search, you can search other sites and the like. The more you rely on these digital personal assistants, the less likely you're going to search outside of them. And now they can become the key gatekeeper of your ecosystem. And their power can increase significantly. And let's see. Oh yeah. So the effects here of the uh, of the digital system isn't just economic. It's not likely going to be just the ability to price discriminate better. But the digital personal assistance can also affect the news that you watch, the entertainment that you receive, the suggestions and the like. They can really start controlling your worldview. And there was this one interesting study you may have um, heard about that Facebook conducted, where they altered the news feed of the um, um, uh, readers. And they wanted to see like emotional contagion. If I have more positive stories, what impact does that have on your posting? Or if there are more negative stories, what impact does that have? And what they found was a statistically significant effect on the postings. More negative postings you receive, more likely you're going to respond negatively. More positive, more positive postings. And just think, that's just one manipulation. How much more manipulation can be the more that you rely on these digital um, bubbles? Now, you're going to hear um, next week, um, <coughs> and the, her co-author have come up with a paper about a purist bubble. 
And I think this is really exciting. And one of the things is, will the market provide an alternative? So let's say if you were exploited, if the digital butler is not necessarily aligned with your interests, can you easily switch to another digital assistant? Yes, we hope so. But we can't necessarily assume that market forces will deliver a pure spot. One of the reasons that we identify are these data-driven network effects. And network effects aren't necessarily bad. Think of the telephone. More people that have a telephone, the more utility you have from the telephone. With these data-driven markets, we find other types of network effects. That the more people that use, for example, a search engine, the better the quality of the search engine itself. It, it tapers off it at some point. But nonetheless, there are these enormous network effects that can then allow big firms to become bigger, collect even more data, which helps improve the quality of the product and helps separate the gap. So one potential entry barrier are these data-driven network effects. The other is the leverage of the super platform, that you're going to interconnect with one of these uh, digital butlers, <clears throat> you want something that might be able to coordinate well with your calendar, with your mapping technology, with your driverless car, with all of the um, products, the smart technologies you have in your home. And the super platforms already can offer many of these services that put them at a competitive advantage uh, to rivals. So the key takeaway here is that the effects aren't just going to be economic. They can then be potentially affecting our democratic ideals, and they can affect our well-being. So, is the future bleak? No, not necessarily so. I just want to keep reminding that it's not necessarily bleak. We can, through a combination of competition policy, consumer protection, and privacy, still get the benefits of a data-driven economy that ultimately improves our well-being. But we can't assume necessarily that this will invariably happen under the current antitrust policies. And one of the things is, there's an interesting um, conference going on at the University of Chicago today <coughs> and yesterday. And they're looking at, is there a concentration problem in America? And this is sort of ironic, because the University of Chicago helped bring about a change in antitrust policy in the 1980s. And what we had over the past 35 years is what's called antitrust light. Belief that markets normally self-correct, we shouldn't really be as concerned about vertical restraints, nor should we really be concerned about monopolies as much in the light. And what we've seen just in the past year is a lot of economic literature coming out from the Council of Economic Advisors, from the Obama White House, that there are warning signs, there are red flags that our competitive market isn't working necessarily the way it should be. What we're seeing is that there's increasing concentration levels. And profits are accruing to a handful of firms. So there are fewer firms, greater profits, less mobility among workers, fewer startups, and the like. And the other concern is as we shift from the brick and mortar to go to the data-driven economy, our current antitrust tools won't necessarily solve the problem. That there are various problems with our current tools. That they're very much price-centric, and many of these markets are multi-sided. The products and services are offered for free. They defy the 
the, the antitrust paradigm, not always, but in, 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 in several important uh, uh, ways. So we can't ignore the issue. So what are we going to do with that? And um, we love this quote. It's by uh, Barry Nailbrook. He's a, uh, uh, a game theorist at Yale. And he says, when the masses get mad enough, perhaps they'll elect a new trust-busting trust Teddy Roosevelt to the digital era. And this was before the, um, the elections. Um, he was reviewing our book for uh, Science Magazine. He said, yeah, this would be great. Right? And um, now we have uh, Trump. And uh, the question is, what if, what's the Trump administration going to do? And here I do have some good news. Um, one of the goals of our book was to alert competition authorities that there may be competitive problems, that there may be this facade of competition that on the surface looks really promising, but underlying it, there are real problems. And in just the past few months, you've had, particularly in Europe, um, senior policymakers that are now engaged in the subject. They really are interested in this. We presented this book to both the US and, and EU competition authorities. Uh, Terrell McSweeney of the FTC is very much engaged in this issue. So that's really promising. But it's going to take more. And I think one of the things that's going to be on you is to hold the politicians as well as the antitrust officials accountable. What exactly are you doing to address these potential uh, risks? So I leave you then with the following food for thought. You know, to what extent does the invisible hand still hold sway? We've got now a digitized hand. You look at Uber's algorithm, it can determine the market clearing price. Now, does that open the possibility for smart regulation? I mean, that's one possibility. And to what extent is there going to be any more a competitive price? So when you go onto Amazon, you say, this doesn't seem right. What is going to be your framework in comparing that price to what might be the competitive benchmark price? Because all of you are going to have your own unique price. You're going to have your unique experience under the behavioral discrimination. And then this goes to the uh, digital assistants. If we have these super platforms, and if these network effects lead to one or two personal digital assistants, what are the impacts going to be on our privacy? It was an interesting case in Arkansas where the police tried to um, subpoena the, the information off of Amazon's digital assistant. So what does that mean for surveillance by the government? What does that also mean about private surveillance of your behavior? And to what extent does that impact our democratic um, ideals and our well-being? So I'm very interested in hearing your thoughts. You are the future. So let me uh, go at it. Thank you, Professor Stucky. We're going to turn it open it up for a question and answer at this point. Hi. <coughs> a little further talk and a uh, naughty set of problems. So I was wondering, what sort of concrete changes to antitrust policy would you recommend given this? What should we, you know, assuming you could persuade the uh, FTC to do what you wanted to do, what would that be? There isn't, first off, there isn't going to be a silver bullet because some of the problems are just, the current tools may not reach like tacit collusion. So there, it's going to be very hard to say 
that the agencies are going to you know, penalize the firms just because they're acting interdependently with one another. So one of the things that we're thinking about um, is what are, rather than doing ex, ex post enforcement, are there necessary conditions that could help promote privacy competition? So <clears throat> the uh, UK's Consumer um, Markets Authority, they're looking at privacy competition as the canary in the coal mine. And to the extent that you're not getting necessarily the privacy benefits, that might be some sort of market failure. And then it might not be an antitrust solution, but it might be greater coordination with the privacy, consumer protection, and the antitrust officials to put mechanisms in the marketplace in order to increase that data portability. So that would be one aspect. Second would be, uh, for the super platforms, would be to be tougher on Section 2 enforcement. I mean, we were talking about that uh, beforehand. The DOJ brought one case in the last 16 years under Section 2. And just to give you an idea, they've brought more cases under the Bird Migratory Act in one year than they have under the last, I believe, we have the statistics, but it's like 20 years under Section 2. So the Europeans have been basically leading on this front. I think the US authorities need to step up on that as well. And then for behavioral discrimination, I think it's greater control over your data and your ability to be tracked and your ability to opt out of being tracked. And we have that in terms of uh, COPPA for our children. There are much greater privacy protections that are afforded for um, uh, children than there are for adults. We don't necessarily need to extend all of that, but there might be some measures that we can do so we can avoid being on track. Yes? Um, you said earlier that digital assistance would influence people in a way that we may not want to. But how does that differ from more traditional ways like a local newspaper? There's if there's only one newspaper and you have to read that one, or um, the radio, for example, if you always tune into the same station. How is that? How is a pers uh, digital assistant different? When I was at DOJ, that was one of the things that we looked at was at uh, press monopolies. And that would be a concern, right? That in a less robust marketplace of ideas, you could have censorship. And the problem is that you may not necessarily identify it because you don't know about the stories that the newspaper could have reported but chose not to. Here, that's only going to be one parameter of that because the newspaper has to have some sort of guess of their readers. Here you're going to have a highly personalized environment where you're going to be given articles that they, that the, the super platform thinks you might enjoy. And so here your worldview can really change significantly. At least like in the New York Times, if you have a broad readership base, the newspaper has to find stories that somehow won't alienate one set of readers versus another. But under this scenario, they can be highly targeted and they can create sort of a worldview. So they know that you're susceptible, let's say, to fake news and of a particular sort, right? Then they can provide you that stream of news. So the effects can be much more pernicious. A question for you. So we're almost in, just to be clear, I'm not a student here, I'm coming from a tech company, but um, our worldview right now is shaped 
by the construct of you know this being an anomalous situation what's going on with like an amazon alexa kind of scenario i mean you know in big data and competition you talk about data i mean the CAGR as we look over five ten years i mean data doubling every year this is you know the fourth industrial revolution brings us to a very different kind of place and we're almost looking at antitrust policy in a way that views the construct on our worldview today versus what it will be in 10, 15 years when we're in the heart of that. I guess the heart of my question might be, how do we influence policy associated, I mean, this is a major change that's coming. I mean, Deming's research out of the education program, it's, it's, it's an overwhelming change to how we work, how we interact with society. What is, how do we change our worldview? How do we change DOJ viewpoints as to you know the the major change that is coming the role of data the role of just the that intuition libertus like the the carnegie mellon um experiment it's you know it's it's imperfect information i mean that's going to permeate into negotiation it's it's going to permeate into all aspects of society how do we how do we change our worldview based on that we would hear them. And uh, invariably, the, the, these were researchers that were supported by Google. And um, they, they were very superficial arguments that because data is free, uh, consumers necessarily, you know, because the service is free, consumers necessarily benefit. You know, data is like sunshine, it can't form an intramural line. So the first level is to really analyze the myths and say, deconstruct the myths and say, are the myths real? And there might be some element of truth in them for some markets, but they're not universal truths. So that's one. One way to explain to policymakers is that the issue is far more complex than these 10 simple myths. The second then would to say, okay, going forward, what are some of the potential risks? And to start identifying the risks and the like. And then to start looking at economic literature that helps support this uh, risk. So, um, Already you start seeing some economic studies. There's two studies whereby they created these gasoline apps. And the belief was that by having the gasoline apps, it'll be easier for you to find where gas is cheaper. That should mean lower prices for you. But consistent with our um, algorithmic collusion scenario, that actually had the opposite effect, that it actually raised price. Because now the algorithms can see exactly what each rival is charging. They can quickly undercut it and the like. So a second component then is to do more economic uh, testing. And I think for, for, for you, this is a really exciting area where you can combine competition policy, you can combine game theory, and you can start creating these pricing algorithms and start testing them yourselves. And say under what conditions, for example, in coordination, the, if we want to create, let's say, a algorithmic collusion incubator, what conditions can help create that collusion? And what conditions can help destabilize that collusion? So you can start creating these programs yourselves and start testing them or using some of the pricing algorithms in the market and start testing them to see when is it likely to be pro or anti-competitive. So that's the second component. And then the third is to keep an eye on the big picture. And the big picture right now is what are the macroeconomic trends? 
you know, is our competition policy working for us? And to start using your resources to start questioning, how are we benefiting from this competition policy? We've got growing wealth inequality. We've got higher concentration. We have greater profits accruing to fewer funds. And I think what you'll find is you're going to have greater interest on both the right and the left on those um, issues. Hi. Um, so I guess my question is, is, you keep on referring to a they. What exactly or who exactly are you referring to? Are you referring to algorithms? Are you referring to the data you know, companies? And then specifically, what kind of legal mechanisms um, after we do, say, this incubator kind of experiment, um, would we be able to implement to adequately control or not control competition? All right, the, the, the second question is, it's going to, some of the, we'll see what it, it would be helpful to see what type of information flow helps facilitate this tacit provision. And if it's the sharing of information that consumers may not particularly value, but could be very helpful in sustaining the algorithmic collusion, then competition makers, then competition officials can target that. They can limit the sharing of that information. If there are other factors that um, help foster this algorithmic collusion, such as the transparency of price, and customers rely on that as well as competitors, then you don't have a ready solution for the competition official. So you might then think of other policies, maybe outside the competition authorities, to help destabilize tacit collusion. This might be ways to foster entry by mavericks or the like. So I think there you have to have a broader framework of what creates the conditions for this algorithm and collusion, and what are some factors that can help destabilize that collusion. Now, when I was referring to they, I was probably in Marvel, because there were many they's throughout my uh, presentation. So one important they are the competition officials, right? They're there to protect you. And um, one of the, uh, there's this great article, whatever happened to the antitrust movement, it said, you know, antitrust originally was a movement without any cases. And then Richard Hofstetter said, by the 1960s, you had cases, but no antitrust movement. Now, we don't have antitrust cases except for cartels. Few, few merger challenges. And we don't really have any antitrust movement. But this is remarkable because the first, this is the first time in a long time that you have populists like Elizabeth Warren that are speaking out about increased antitrust you had it part of the democratic uh, platform, increase antitrust enforcement. And you have a populist Trump who has mentioned antitrust. So now the question is to start saying, have what we've been doing worked? Where has it been working? Where hasn't it been working? And start putting pressure on the competition officials. And then the second group would be on the super platform. And to understand, you know, why is it that it's taken me so long to have an ad blocking measure on my phone when that technology has existed for so long? And what are my alternatives? And to start, you know, you, it's going to be hard to circumvent, but maybe find ways to, first of all, accept the risks if you take one of these digital personal assistants. What are the likely risks? 
And then are there other ways that you can do it without minimizing the privacy or consumers? This question is about um, time frame. So specifically, the things you're discussing seem like they're in the present and the immediate future. And I'm wondering how far out your work is projecting or considering and whether it's relevant to think in a longer term future about social or economic or cultural effects of these systems. Yeah, so um, let me just go. Uh, so right now, uh, for the collusion scenarios, we already are in the messenger scenario. And Hopkins case is one. The European Commission is investigating another. The hub and spoke, they're starting now to look at that. And it's not, and one of the things is that as companies start outsourcing their pricing to companies like Boomerang, and so you have multiple competitors that are using the same um, pricing algorithm, this is likely going to become an issue. Uber is already now in federal court, and there's this sort of hub-and-spoke conspiracy. They survived the motion to dismiss. This is likely to become more difficult as companies migrate online and start outsourcing their pricing to Alberta. This we're starting to see as well in the gasoline industry as companies migrate to pricing algorithms. Let's say in the next three to four years, this is going to become a greater issue. This is longer term. This would be once we start getting the Internet of Things and really start the data being collected, and you can have then a better image and the artificial intelligence as, 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 as it improves. I would say five to ten years, this is going to likely be um, uh, on the horizon. For behavioral uh, discrimination, you already have behavioral discrimination, you already have dynamic pricing. Um, now the question is that why isn't there more of it? It's because there's an unfairness element. Customers are upset by it. But to the extent that we start accepting dynamic pricing, that we're told that the price is different because the supply and demand changes minute by minute, then it's going to be easier to also price discriminate because there's no longer a fixed price. So you don't know is it a dynamic price or is it a discriminatory price. So I would expect this is already happening. I expect this to grow in the next uh, five years. The um, digital personal assistant, I mean, already right now uh, with the super platforms, the European Commission is investigating uh, Google for various uh, uh, offenses. There have been one uh, statement of, I think, yeah, there's been one statement of objections. There hasn't been any final adjudication, so the jury is still out, but this is likely to become an issue. Digital plat digital butler, I think, is just taking off. I mean, we just recently upgraded for a paper that we're doing for the OECD, and it's just amazing how many apps are being added now for these digital assistants. And just looking at the ads now, you see on TV, you go to your, um, your um, home improvement centers, so I would say in the next uh, five or six years, it'll be interesting to see if one of the four super platforms is going to become our primary butler and what impact that, that will likely have. I mean, you're already starting to have that with the fake news. Is that a antitrust problem? I guess what I'm wondering, um, maybe suggesting, is whether there's any utility um, to thinking out even farther in the future, like 50 years with speculative design fictions about what may emerge so that we can start 
because things are moving so quickly so that we can start putting in place sort of laws or policies now in anticipation of that future and whether that's something your work covers. Yeah, see, I'm just I'm such a person with like path dependencies that I just wonder that you know there could be so many different routes. I think one thing is, I, I, I can't project what's gonna happen in 50 years, but I think one thing is you wanna keep the competitive portals open so you can allow innovations that can promote your interests. And doing so, that's the best insurance policy for like 10, 15 years. All right, I'll, I'll go. This is uh, maybe not to the core of, <laughs> of the presentation, and thank you so much. This is really interesting. But uh, in your work with the, the two of these books, um, have you worked at all uh, together or talked a lot with, with industry, so the major platforms, and what have they been saying about your work? And, and second, just kind of anecdotal, after doing all of this, have you changed your own personal behavior in any way in terms of how you, what you purchase on Amazon and whatnot? We're the worst uh, with, with um, Amazon because we're both, Ariel and I are both Prime users. I was with my mother, she needed to get a battery for her uh, uh, garage. And I could have looked you know, in any of the stores in the, in, the, in the neighborhood, I said, you know, let me just go on Amazon. I found exactly the battery, uh, the battery had it sent to her and the like. And you know, we're Amazon Prime members of this as well. I think there, the, the one thing is is that, yes, I've been much more sensitive to my privacy. Uh, like one of the things that really irked me is when Uber changed its privacy notifications so that they can continually track you even when they don't use your, when you're not using the app. And I thought that was just ludicrous. Like, why do they need to track me when I'm not using the Uber app? So I turned that off. So, but that's always problematic because then when I want to use Uber, I have to go turn on my location data and the like. Um, the response from the industry, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's um, mixed. You have some, particularly when we go to the, um, the, uh, the frenemy scenario, is that here, people like Uber are starting to get concerned. Because you know, when, when, when I spoke with the, the, the folks at um, Uber, um, they were concerned about the taxi commissions. Right? They said, those are the problem. They're keeping us out of the market. And I said, well, what about Google? And they said, no, Google is an investor in our company. You know, there's a member who sits on our board. But now you can see is like Google in controlling the super platform, controlling the phone. <coughs> it has the mapping technology on which Uber is relying. And it's also now going into driverless cars. Yeah. So you can then see how a frenemy relationship might arise. And I think now what you've seen now over in the last year, two years, is they've hired a lot of uh, um, um, professors from Carnegie Mellon to step up their driverless cars. They're also investing in mapping technology. So one of the things that we're hearing, our concerns, are the ones that are relying on this platform. And they're coming to us and saying, you know, these are, we're dependent. They control our oxygen supply. Um, Google, it's, it's an evolving debate. Um, we go to conferences and we present our book. Um, I think now they're starting to, they're starting to move the, the game post. They're no longer necessarily wedded to the 10 myths. Um, now they're raising questions about, well, what are, you know, um, 
Uh, one of the things as well, privacy can be a non-price component of competition, but that's going to be rare or the like. Um, so, I mean, but the other thing is that we're not anti-Google as well. Google does a lot of wonderful things in terms of internet connection with its fiber, the technologies that they provide. But the, the, the issue is that, you know, I remember I asked, um, this was way back when, I asked uh, Hal Varian, who's their chief economist. Um, and antitrust used to be a, a mechanism that would protect both the strong and the, the, the weak. And the strong realized that if things ever changed, they would have the protection from the antitrust laws as well. And so there was this belief that these were the rules, we're all bound by these rules and the like. And I asked, um, I said, doesn't that apply with Google? I mean, because now if you're going into other markets, there might be anti-competitive factors weighing against you. And I don't know. I mean, I, I'm hoping that, like Microsoft, sort of changed its tune after the DOJ, that that possibility might happen with them as well. Because there's no reason that, you know, we, they're not really the villain here because they are producing great technologies. But it's not necessarily always our interests that are their primary interests. Thank you very much for this wonderful talk. I, I wanted to ask a question about the normative premise informing your reasoning, which is we should protect competition. I guess my question is, why do you think we should do that? Because setting the democratic question aside, I think there, there are two, two, two reasons we would go for that. It's either efficiency and well-being, it leads to more efficient economy and more benefit for, for big ones and small ones, for consumers and companies, or it's the deontological reasoning in which things like freedom, choice, autonomy are intrinsically valuable. And so the second half of 20th century, the Soviet-America competition has shown that, that good competition, proper functioning market, somehow reaches both goals. But if you think more into the future, like th this happened last 10 years, and you already mentioned Cyber Butler, which is in for, like automatizing our consumer choices, but we can also think one, two, three decades ahead where also what we do, our professional life, would be automatized. With all this data, when we know who is good at doing what, who is where, what are the societal needs, we can imagine that we are getting to a world in which central planning will be possible. And so it is possible that at some point we'll face a choice between more efficient economy where we have no freedom or a world in which we still have choice and autonomy, but this will lead to a less efficient outcome. I'm, I'm wondering what you think about that. <laughs> no, it's a great question. And um, so we went back to Hayek on this one, right? And we, this is, we actually have a chapter on this. Because we were thinking about this, you know, Uber doesn't own the cars, doesn't employ, as it claims, the drivers, right? And yet, it can determine the market clearing price for its services. And one of the problems that Hayek says is the dissemination of information, that the market serves the function of accruing that information and the price, and that leads then to efficiency, right? That there's no central planner because the central planner will never be able to identify all the relevant information in the marketplace and effectively determine what the right price will be for the products. And one of the things that we're thinking about is, well, if Uber can set the price for cars, well, why can't the government do those through smart regulation? 
can we develop algorithms that can take all the market data and determine the market clearing price? Now, there are problems with that because you have capture issues, capture and the like. But one of the things that you're starting to see is that municipalities are now doing that as well, that for uh, metering in San Francisco, they have sensors, they can see where the cars are being parked, where they're not being parked, and they can price differently when there's you know, uh, excess uh, supply, they can lower then the price as a result. So I think one component is that there may be an opening for smart regulation. The other component is what does it mean, what does competition mean in this uh, 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 future market? And I don't think necessarily it's going to be mean efficiency because I think in any democracy you have a certain amount of inefficiency. So there are these trade-offs and the economists may not necessarily know how we're going to then make these trade-offs. So one trade-off here is that by engaging in this behavior, they can lower the search cost for advertisers to contact you. That could lower the cost of advertisers, that could yield efficiencies. But on the other hand, you have the privacy concerns of consumers being tracked. And how do you then, and I think those are going to be invariably uh, policy issues. That is not going to be one that we can necessarily measure, you know, what are the costs and what are the benefits. But ultimately, what do we want? And how do we decentralize economic power to prevent some of these issues? I think we have time for we have time for one more question. All right. Um, thanks so much for your talk. Um, I have a question about price discrimination. You mentioned that um, over here. Hi. <laughs> um, that you know it can be either good or bad, and I, uh, I was wondering if you could tell a bit more about that assessment because I imagine that so on the whole. Uh, you know, it, it produces, it increases total output, but uh, it does lead to, to uh, the seller capturing more of like the consumer surplus. Um, but on the other hand, there's also perhaps a, a kind of a redistributive element to it, to the extent that most likely the people with the most money are going to be paying the most, right? And then how does that also tie in, as you mentioned, to like the public perception of these practices? Because you say if people think it's unfair, you know, should we? And when does that change? How do we assess that? Right. I mean, so I'm a parent. I have a daughter now who's a freshman in college. And I'm a victim of perfect price discrimination because they know exactly how much we're willing to pay, right? And I'm okay with it. And I think the reason is that most of us are okay with it is because it yields a greater goal. First off, in that setting, price discrimination creates opportunities for people who otherwise could not purchase the product. And then secondly, even for the people that pay more, they benefit because the educational environment is enriched, right? It wouldn't, it would be very different to be here at Harvard where you only have people that can afford to pay the full price or even above the full price. So you're benefiting um, as a result of this educational enrichment, society's benefiting as well. Now, if we take that, so there are these greater social goals that come from it, and the quality of the product itself is enhanced by the price discrimination. <coughs> but with the behavioral discrimination that we identify, first, the quality of the product may not be improved. Second, it's inducing you to buy things that ordinarily you might not have purchased. And so that can be, in some ways, wasteful, like finding ways to get you to smoke. Right? And then the third thing is that not necessarily the rich are going to be soaked and the poor are going to pay less. It could have the opposite effect. 
and what we found from some of the online behavioral discrimination is that the poor who don't have an outside option are charged actually a higher price, like the office depot, the stables, and the like. When you live in a poorer neighborhood, you pay a higher price.